This episode is with Dr. Zach Bush, MD. And if you've never heard from him before, you're in for an absolute treat. This is one of my favorite podcasts of 2020, bar none. And it's brought to you today by Blue Blocks. That's blueblocks.com slash amp by ShipStation, which is shipstation.com code word amp. And of course, on it, wrapping up its Black Friday sale, onit.com slash Aubrey. Dr. Zach Bush has some of the widest range of any individual I've ever known. I mean, he's an absolute expert on regenerative agriculture. He worked in the ER. He tells some amazing stories on this podcast about some of the people he brought back to life, you know, just like you see in the movies or the TV shows with the paddles and then explaining the first thing they said when they came back, which really gave him a foothold to a spiritual understanding that is absolutely phenomenal. So, this podcast covers an incredible range, a lot of the challenges we've experienced in 2020, and also a way to reframe our understanding about how to live an ecstatic life when fear is all around us. I hope you guys love this conversation as much as I did. So one of the biohacks that is absolutely not debatable is keeping blue light out of your eyes when it starts to get dark. And the blue light comes from all the artificial light in our homes. Now I write about this in my book and pretty much every individual who writes about sleep writes about this because the problem is that the blue light then actually triggers those daylight sensors in our circadian rhythm, which actually suppresses the production of melatonin, which is the hormone that helps us fall asleep. So eliminating or at least restricting the blue lights that you're letting wash over your eyes at night is gonna have a huge impact. So that's where Blue Blocks comes in. Now, most of these blue light blocking glasses, they look, I don't know, like not that sexy, like not that sweet. Blue Blocks really took it to the best place possible and made these glasses look really good, feel really good, high quality, and just as effective as anything you will find anywhere else. So I highly recommend this product, it's phenomenal. Go to Blue Blocks dot com slash amp that's b-l-u-b-l-o-x dot com slash amp or use the discount code amp for 15 percent off at checkout once again blueblocks.com forward slash amp for 15 percent off our next sponsor is ShipStation. now right now we got a bunch of orders going out through ShipStation at on it all of the black friday cyber monday orders they're all being fulfilled and whether you have a medium-sized business a large business or a small business there's no easier way to get all of the logistics get all of the technical aspects dialed in so that your customers can receive whatever you're shipping man even if you're crushing it with your shoe game or your basketball card game on ebay and if it's me, it's the Magic the Gathering card game on eBay. But either way, if you're crushing it and you just want to make things convenient, ShipStation will hook you up. So definitely check that out, ShipStation.com. You can try it free for 60 days when you use the code AMP. Go to ShipStation.com, use the code AMP, and enjoy ShipStation making your life convenient 60 days for free. And lastly, I want to talk to you guys about Onnit. Thank you to everybody who shopped for our Black Friday, Cyber Monday sale. Amazingly, we had primal bells that have lasted longer than we anticipated. So if you've been looking for kettlebells, we might still have a few available at the time of this podcast release. If not, we'll get some more back in stock. And the sale is continuing for another 24, 48 hours, depending on when you listen to this. So check that out. And if not, 
always, every single day. You can go to onnit.com slash Aubrey and get 10% off. And also our subscription model gives you access to Black Friday type of prices year round when you get a subscription. So onnit.com slash Aubrey, 10% off everything. And then if you're interested, get a subscription and you'll lock in the best prices possible. I love you guys so much. Thanks for your support over all the years. And now we have an uninterrupted podcast with Dr. Zach Bush, MD. Dr. Zach Bush. It's so good to be sitting next to you here, man. It is a thrill to be on with you. Yeah, absolutely. So look, man, it's, you know, we're here in the middle of November and we've gone through a long and interesting run and dance with COVID, but it's not stopping. The music, the DJ maybe took a little break, but it seems like the DJ is going back in. The music is starting again. We're likely going to be facing another lockdown and a bunch of more cases of naturally people who have respiratory issues that come up in the winter and then the kind of response that's going to happen. So at this precipice, when you're looking out in the world, you know, what are you, what are you thinking at this point? You know, how are you feeling? What's, what's going through your mind? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a bipolar kind of experience, right? Because on one side, I, I, have a deep frustration and you know often slides into a a bit of hopelessness around the way in which the media has usurped science in in these last few months and i've seen politics dominated by you know media agendas i've seen business manipulated i've seen consumer behavior constantly but i've never seen science co-opted as it's been in this past year and it suggests that we're on one of the the final last throws of the effort to take over a global narrative by a very small mindset and i don't even think it's you know a small group of people per se it's a mindset of controlling human experience such that fear justifies the the biggest responses possible and Mm. so if we march from pretty much the end of vietnam war conflict all the way to now you see a series of events that keeps amping up the sense of danger and fear in the american mindset which has allowed for this consistent creep of degradation of our civil liberties and COVID has certainly been an extraordinary example of how a fear paradigm can allow a diverse population with diverse socio-political viewpoints to become extremely homogenous in their response and so that on the one side that leads to that sense of hopelessness amazement all of this on the flip side of it if there were a organized effort to control human beings it fundamentally failed this year Mm. because i see this massive rise in human connection it's never been easier than this moment to find your people that you've been looking for for perhaps lifetimes and that gets exciting it means that for whatever vibrations of fear and vibrations of paranoia may exist within the space there's a harmonic happening at this higher level that may be reinforced even by the fear at this point this harmonic is saying there's something bigger there's something more exciting there's a hope there's a a rise in awareness that is far more infectious than any virus I've seen. 
the harmonic is such a great word. And yeah, human beings, we we respond to resistance with adaptation. And I think the adaptations, some people are right in the flow of the resistance, just getting chundered in the wave and actually being part of the white water that's washing over and trying to enforce the narrative. But on the other side, when people pop their heads out of the surf and they're looking around at the other people who pop their heads out, like you get to see them real, real clearly, like, oh, hey what's going on and that's like a it's a beautiful thing that's happening and i think that's where if you want to look at the at the case for optimism that's that's the great place to look is how that process is working and it reminds me that i was i was reading a, a while ago about the genetic the genetic bottleneck theory and in the genetic bottleneck theory there was a massive volcano that put so much particulate matter in the air. I think it was Krakatoa or one of those big volcanoes that you know a lot of the vegetation died and it was a period of darkness that, that kind of swelled over the world. And human beings had to rush to the coast because the oceans were their only bountiful source of food when the sun wasn't shining and the crops weren't raising. They couldn't get the fruit or the natural. I don't even know if it was crops back then. I think it was just the flora and fauna that they were typically used to. Animals dying of famine, plants dying. So they went to the coast and the, the best and the brightest humans at that point were learned how to fish, learned how to you know source from the ocean. And so a lot of people died, which was of course tragic at that point but what ended up happening from that is the smartest the brightest the most you know in the people with the most ingenuity they all got together and started breeding and started creating this new movement and in some ways like this resistance is you know while of course there are deaths and deaths are always you know they're always tragic especially if it's someone that you know and especially depending on your mindset it can be more or less tragic whether you think of it as the end and you have such a great you know take on all this and we'll get to that at some point but there's also the people coming together who are maybe not breeding in the same way genetically but they're breeding with their ideas and they're all of these things are merging from the people who've made it to the coast and are like okay now we're here let's all like link up and be a sum that's greater than our parts and that's a powerful, powerful force that we can just thank the narrative for and, and thank in some ways, you know, despite again, all the sympathy for the tragic consequences of this virus, but thank the resistance for bringing this adaptation that um, I think will have ripples for eternity. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really well said. And the, to put some biologic structure around that concept of, you know, this near extinction event that drives people to the coasts and all of this, what's emerging from the current science of the virome as we start to understand this pool of genetic information that's in the air, water, and soil systems that we refer to as the virome, this is the ecosystem, if you will, of genomic communication. So this is how bacteria, fungi, and multicellular organisms communicate as to what's happening in, the, in their environment and uh, offering up opportunity for adaptation to the greater good. And so viruses are the method by which we participate in the dance of life, uh, whether we're a bacteria or a human, and we're exuding these things all of the time as genomic updates, genomic opportunities for adaptation and biodiversification. And so one possibility for the story you just told is that we had you know this kind of intuitive intelligent group that went to the coast it intuited the next version of human culture in, in technologies that would allow them to innovate past the the lack of photosynthesis and maintain life the alternative op option though is an intriguing one that with the 
death event happening in the collapse of not just humans at that time, but as you said, animals and soil systems, all of that collapsing, whether we're looking at the event you're talking about or going back a little bit further in time to about 55 million years ago with that volcanic event that Mm -hmm. covered the earth or it may have been an asteroid. Sure, same thing, particular Same thing happens, but that time we got, you know, 90% of life on earth disappeared, including the dinosaurs. And the fascinating thing to me, if we look at that extinction event or any of the other, you know, four before that, we've had five massive extinction events like that on the planet. The, nature never struggles back to some previous normal. Like nature didn't take the next 55 million years to reinvent the dinosaurs. <laughs> and I'm so intrigued by that. Like, right. why not? Because the dinosaurs, as any five-year-old will tell you, were badass. They were just like... <laughs> nothing cooler was ever invented like you know you look around (laughs) at humans and it's like we don't have like badass razor fins on our back and we don't have plates of armor on our heads like we seem kind of like a dumbed down version of biology compared to the dinosaurs so why didn't we go back to dinosaurs why wasn't that the coolest thing and the answer is i have no idea on one level but it, it would speak to this constant desire for innovation mm. within the fabric of biology, within the intention of the universe, that any opportunity created by stress or collapse, we can study just a, any forest system or in a regenerative garden to figure out that without the death cycle, you don't get the explosion of life in the spring. You don't get that rebirth event. And the the word rebirth there is actually inaccurate and in that it's got the word re in there that makes it sound like it's happened before. We're constantly birthing. We're constantly birthing a new environment around us, within us, and, and we are never the same. Mm. And so as we have this tendency to tell a human narrative that goes back and especially right now when we see Western civilization really threatening the fabric of our ecosystems and our own consciousness on some level, it's tempting to feel like we need to go back to our indigenous roots, but that might be a mistake. It may actually be a way in which to create a narcissistic trap for our indigenous peoples, suggesting that they had completed something in the past. Instead, I think it'd be exciting if we said welcomed the indigenous wisdom into a new future that would birth something completely different. And so in that way, I think we need to all start just reorienting every fiber of our body, every cellular structure, every human narrative into this forward spiral instead of one that's retrospective. Yeah, that's absolutely what I what I imagine. And, and it seems to me that the the grandest, highest calling and purpose of the human being is we are the ones that with our technology can actually mitigate an extinction event. Right, like it's possible if all the people with all our resources stopped worrying about borders and worrying about different religions and colors of skin and all of the trivial nonsense which comes from this ignorance of the fact that we're all one, connected to the earth, connected to each other. And if we started to realize that, say, okay, we have the best minds, we have a bunch of resources, instead of spending trillions of dollars bailing out for this thing, how about we spend those trillions of dollars uh, looking at trying to prevent you know, like Armageddon style, what happens when we find that asteroid that's coming, that's going to create a a global extinction event? You know, like what happens when that volcano, we realize like, damn, this is a super volcano and this is going to be a big fucking problem. And like, I don't know the solutions. I'm not a scientist in that way, but I can only imagine that with our ingenuity, we maybe have a chance to actually shepherd life from that next extinction event beyond. But instead we're actually driving the extinction event 
you know, and not realizing because we can't get our shit together and come together. It's the classic story of the tribes that are all at war with each other and then somebody else comes and they're able to actually conquer a people because let's say the germanic tribes they're all fighting against each other and then rome comes in and as long as they're fighting against each other it's a cakewalk but when they rally together oh this is a problem now and i think that's the it almost is like the story of noah's ark i think was kind of this idea that was placed it's all parable and, and that's i think a big problem with religion they take things literally but that parable is human beings with their ingenuity built a ship and that ship was able to actually take two of each animal and shepherd them through this extinction event which was the flood now i'm not saying that that's literal and there's no ships we're not going to another planet that's not what i mean i think the ship is the earth and we have the chance to actually shepherd the earth and all its diversity and creatures through that next extinction event and that's what we're that's what's special about humans that's where we save the day instead of just fucking things up all the time and if we can get that and really feel that have that felt sense of like tatua masi i am that too i am that beetle i am that rhinoceros i am that other human on the other side of the world we're all the fucking same let's go team you know team survival of this beautiful game board where all souls can incarnate let's keep this thing going it's beautifully said it's beautifully said and the biology that we're uncovering suggests that everything is at hand everything you just said uh doesn't have to be technologically developed in any kind of linear fashion the biology is sitting there as a template for everything and so my company has started to innovate different areas health software technologies uh, energy system with an engineering company all of which are being fabriced on the, the form of a mitochondria because the mitochondrion, which is an ancient bacteria, or the archaea, were the first bacteria that started to thrive in really caustic environments like volcanoes and you know acidic oceans and all of this. And those archaea, some you know billion years into their their existence, started to absorb methane producing bacteria that were much smaller than themselves. And so we got this weird marriage of a methane producing bacteria with an archaea. And that would become the beginning of the real energetic force of life on earth mm. because we shifted at that point from fermentation to a, a respiratory metabolism we could make energy at 10x to 100x more efficient than we were with fermentation and at that moment it allowed for the possibility of really robust multicellular life to, to occur on the planet and in that template we can reimagine everything from information technology and communication across the world all the way to you know energy systems the thing that a, a mitochondrion will prove to you as you dive into it and this was my area of focus in endocrinology and metabolism was studying it from the 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 lens of cancer and cancer is mm. is a story of a loss of energy production yeah, the mitochondria, I'm looking, I'm sure you're familiar then with Otto von Warburg, who really showed that cancer, what happens in cancer is the mitochondria reverts and the cells revert to the archaic process of sugar fermentation. That's right. They, and they do that because they lose their form. And so they, they go from this kind of oblong kidney bean looking thing that's got this beautifully you know, architected interior where the inner membrane of that methane producing element is you know folded in this really eloquent architecture 
as you start to move towards a cancer cell, which is, you know, the hallmark is accumulation of toxins within the cell that can't be cleared and a slowing of the protein repair processes within the mitochondria, you lose that architecture and it turns into what looks more like a spherical glob. And so in that, it loses the respiratory function and so moves you back towards fermentation. And so from Warburg to now, the last 100 years, we've come to realize that all chronic disease can be mapped back to this dysfunction within it. And so mm -hmm. in my clinic, for example, the, one of the primary tools we use in an initial visit is something called the phase angle, which measures the electrical potential across a single membrane. It's, it's showing you how much charged energy, how much electromagnetic field are you producing. And a healthy body measures out with a, a metric of like 10 to 13 on the, on the scale that you measure the phase angle. And cancer always occurs around four to five and death occurs at 3.5. Mm. And so it's a good, good demonstration of the fact that chronic disease emerges as a result of this failed energy production. It's never attacking us. There's no disease that's ever leapt up and attacked a healthy human cell. You don't get disease in a, with a phase angle of 13. You, know, you are so resilient, you can repair faster than any injury can imagine itself. And, and you're really in the quantum state of energy at that point where repair is, is so, co so instantaneous because it's all built around coherent waveform of energy. So it doesn't even take like protein synthesis and genomics. You're literally just in a wave state, that harmonic we were talking about earlier. You can phase shift that cell so that it's at this high harmonic level and it, it becomes so resilient because there's no static that can come in to disrupt that signal. As we start to decay uh, and push things down uh, into this lower vibration state, we will see these things pop up. And it's interesting to see, you know, most cancers peering at a phase angle of 4.5 and death at 3.5. You're, you're so close to an, a complete incapacity for life by the time most cancers will show up. Yeah. And so that's such a, an important message that to rush into that situation and say, we're going to burn it, we're going to cut it out, we're going to poison that. War. <laughs> we declare war on cancer. Well, what, what is it? Yeah. You know, and, and really then, then Travis Christofferson does a great job of this in his book, Tripping Over the Truth, The Metabolic Theory of Cancer, just saying like, or how about we say, oh man, my mitochondria are sick. Let's rehabilitate those with some, you know, restricted ketogenic fasting, you know, RKD mm -hmm. diets. And we'll do some, you know, breath work and cold therapy and maybe some NAD or whatever, whatever we're doing to say like, okay, cells, I see you. The cancer is a natural result of cells being sick from an, like you said, an accumulation of toxins, environmental stressors and ways in which we're not supporting our mitochondria. Let's, uh, let's focus on that. Instead of war, let's talk about, okay, let's go to healing. Let's go to healing and trust our innate power of this body if we support it in the right ways to self-correct and the clinical results that are showing from that whether paired with chemotherapy or not are pretty astounding when you look at that but again this is a failure of science because his book comes out i'm like great revolution in our understanding of cancer not didn't happen that way you know people aren't interested in that and you have to say you know some people are like we are but you have to say like, okay, well then what's pushing against that? Well, there's a gigantic trillion dollar industry that's built and has momentum on a different understanding in a different way. And it's just hard to get those forces to turn over because there's such a vested interest in keeping the status quo and continuing this empire that's been built. 
And just as you can phase shift up to that high level of health that you're talking about fostering, and of course, when you go from a phase angle of four to 13, or four to seven even, we usually see real fundamental healing start around seven. So you can push that phase angle up to seven or eight, you've got a real shift in your biologic potential for repair. And so that's, it's not a, well, that takes time, typically a year, two years, three years of really good lifestyle shift to really get a phase angle to start moving. It's not something you change from day to day. The phase angle is actually a pretty recalcitrant situation once you're down that low. So it takes a really synergistic, you know, approach to, as you said, multiple approaches into that mitochondria to start producing energy again. The phenomenon that you see with energy production, just as an aside here, is that you know, it's it's helpful to understand when you say energy, you're literally talking about solar power, right? You're talking about this power of the sun itself. And the way in which this is done is so extraordinary on this planet in that when when the sun emits light, energy, this electromagnetic field, it, it's a it's a nuclear reaction on the surface of the sun that's happening. Mm-hmm. And it's putting out this huge electromagnetic field. And there is no thermal consequence to it in space. And so you have a temperature of minus 260 degrees, and you're, you're whatever, you're near absolute zero, maybe it's minus 240, whatever it is. And so you at this freezing state, just, just seconds off of the surface of the sun. Whoa, that's something I never, I've never heard before. So the sun's not that hot. The sun isn't hot. <laughs> <laughs> because it has nothing to, nothing to heat up. Right, That's I guess exactly right. So it's, wow. it's interfacing with a vacuum. The sun doesn't have a, a, a pocket of air around it to, right. to heat. I can't wait to just drop that on someone. It's hot as the sun in here, and I'm be like, oh yeah, minus two. You're fucking cold as shit, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm like, what? And I'm yeah. like, let me drop some science. Thanks to Dr. Bush. The coldest <laughs> stuff on Earth, right? And so you have a massive electromagnetic field being produced by this radiation event, this nuclear event on the surface of the sun. And it pulses this electromagnetic energy through through the universe. And then it suddenly hits the surface of Earth's atmosphere and we get something we call heat. Mm. So we get a thermal reaction. There's a, a literal you know, translation happening in the physics of the situation. So you've got this huge electromagnetic field that's moving in the form of light energy and mag- magnetism that then hits the surface of, of the earth and is translated into thermodynamics. And so you, you go into a heat phenomenon. In that thermal induction, you have the potential to change the forms of water and carbon. And until you get the archaea starting to do this weird methane producing stuff, nothing really happens that's terribly interesting. You can certainly change some chemical uh, composition of the mole- molecules on the planet with that thermal thermogenic event. But it's not until you get that archaea with that methane-producing bacteria inside of it that things get interesting. And in the plants, this took on the form of plastids, which are basically mitochondrion that live in plants instead of you know uh, uh, multicellular biology on the animal side. And so the plastid, the most they come in many forms, these plastids, and they do many cool things that lead to the medicine within our food and all kinds of interesting things. But the most famous one, obviously, is chlorophyll which then takes that thermal energy from the sun, turns it back into an electromagnetic event. And so you're no longer thermal, you're now going into a release of, of electrical energy that's then put into the re- reaction between carbon molecules. So now you can take CO2 and build it into large carbohydrates or fats. And so that was the beginning 
of this you know, move towards a respiratory potential for the mitochondria. And so plants, as they start to do photosynthesis, they're capturing and translating solar event you know, from mm. the sun into a carbohydrate. And then that carbohydrate put into the environment can be consumed now by a respiratory bacteria or a multicellular mammal ultimately that can then put that into the bloodstream, get that down to the point where it can reach a mitochondrion and the mitochondrion then reverses the whole process. The <laughs> mitochondrion takes these large carbohydrates and fats and you know, so many of us spend so much time talking about you know, low fat diets, high fat diets, high protein diets, carbohydrates. The mitochondria don't care what the hell you're eating. They're going to do the same thing. So it turns out the only fuels obviously they can use are, are carbohydrates and fats. They can, proteins are not fuel. And so you got carbohydrates and fats, which are long chain carbon structures that are broken down into the exact same molecule in a one enzyme step in the surface of a mitochondria. They take both a fat and a sugar and they turn it immediately into acetyl-CoA. And then they, in one, one more enzyme jump and you get acyl-CoA uh, yeah, acyl first and then acetyl-CoA. And so you get these two enzymes to take it down to, into acetyl-CoA. And now that goes into the Krebs cycle and all of this. And the Krebs cycle, we say, makes ATP. Yes, it does. At the end of the respiratory cycle, you get ATP, which we're told is the fuel for the human energy you know, or, uh, source there. But in a lot of ways, I think that's erroneous. I think we're starting to realize, no, it's all the electricity that's released mm. during the breakdown of, of those carbon molecules. And so at almost every level of this complex you know, chain of events through the enzymes within the mitochondria, you're releasing electrons. And what you're literally doing is taking the electromagnetic field of the sun waiting for it to hit the surface of the planet. From there, it then translates it into carbohydrate. Now you have carbohydrate carrying the power of the sun. Carbohydrate breaks down, and you now get the release of that, and now you've released energy in the body at the, at the, in the form of sunshine. And, <laughs> and if, if you think about you know a cubic centimeter of mitochondria, in which pack our cells, there's... If you go to a biology textbook and look up, you know, mitochondria, it'll show two mitochondria typically floating inside of the plasma of the human cell. It, it, they can't depict it accurately because you wouldn't be able to see anything within the cell except mitochondria if they did it right. The average human cell has 200 mitochondria on, and the, it's like a bowl of popcorn. It's a each bowl kernel of popcorn. It's stuffed full of them. Yeah. And a neuron has 2,000 mitochondria in the cytoplasm. Wow. And so you've got these huge populations that just pack the insides of these cells. So when you talk about a cubic centimeter of tissue, you're darn near a cubic centimeter of, of mitochondria. And that cubic centimeter of mitochondria can produce 10,000 times more electromagnetic field energy than a cubic centimeter of the sun. And so you've got wow. this nuclear event going on inside your body that is actually more efficient than, than nuclear fission. And we actually are doing fusion events and then refission events at this molecular level to create this solar event. And so this is one of my favorite things about being alive is the opportunity to give each other hugs. Because what you're literally doing is bringing yourself into the sunshine of another human being because that field emanates far beyond its, the physical body. Which is, again, you know, the unintended consequence based on ignorance of this whole social distancing paradigm. Like, what are we actually doing to the human being? We're absolutely not supposed to distance from each other. We're supposed to be, you know, holding hands next to each other, babies bouncing on our lap, different people. I mean, all you look at the local uh, different tribes. I had a, a, my, you know, one of my mentors, Ted Decker, spiritual mentors, he grew up in actually a, what was a cannibalistic society in uh, Indonesia somewhere and or new guinea 
And they actually, you know, it seems insane, but they would actually, the men as part of their greeting, they had those little cones that went over their penis, but they would just grab each other by the testicles and be like, like, I see you brother, (laughs) you know, in these weird ways. And all of these things were like, that's crazy. But ultimately like they didn't have the preconceived notion. They didn't have these ideas and they were just connecting with people and people were just sharing food by their hand. And this, this way of life that we, that we're distancing ourselves from has massive unintended consequences that we're just not looking at in in the slightest like the energetics is something i think that so many people overlook and i'm so glad you're talking about that because it's the energetics of people versus people but there's also the life force energy of food like i have a little garden in my backyard and i swear even when i put a little bit of those herbs or a little bit of that you know a little bit of that swiss chard I feel different from my meal. What that doesn't make sense from a materialist reductionist standpoint, Swiss chard, organic, they're both organic. If I get it from the store, it's going to be the same as if I get it from my garden. It's not. There's an energetic to the fact that I've loved that garden and I've been there and it's a part of, I can't explain that. That doesn't make sense to me other than from the metaphysical perspective, this perspective that you get from doing plant medicine or something like that, where you actually understand that there's a lot more that can't be measured in you know how many polyphenols and you know what this other thing is like the energetics matter they really matter and this is my favorite thing about being alive as a scientist right now is our tools are getting so cool because they're starting to blend the biologic with the metaphysical environment and so we're starting to be able to measure the reaction of plants to a human emotion and that's exciting, mm. you know, to understand that the love you have for your garden can be measured in the biologic field now in the form of enzymatic work and other things, you know. And so you can show an increase in that metabolic reserve, the increase in the energy capacity of that garden as you come in as a loving being and you approach with your solar radiation event. All of the chlorophyll in that plant are going to have to respond to you, right? <laughs> if you come in in a low magnetic field resonance state and and two of the most powerful ways to lower your field almost instantly are again human emotions and one of them is fear and the other one is is guilt. And so this is an interesting look at our last, you know, eight months of this pandemic is the two tools that are always exercised is first fear. You've got to be afraid of this virus. You got to be afraid of this. And then if that's not powerful enough, guilt. If you don't wear a mask, you make somebody else sick. Your grandma might die because you yeah. didn't wear a mask or whatever. So this fear, and not your guilt grandma, message. but some other person's grandma. You're killing. You're killing other people because of your selfish act. So again, yes, yeah, it's the fear, fear of your own mortality, and then. The guilt. And though both of those have been ramped up. I mean, we're seeing it right now. I mean, they're redlining. I mean, the gauge is like running on red, like RPMs of an engine that's about to collapse. It's like, y'all, really? Like that's it's fucking and people aren't looking at the at the consequences of these things and measuring it against what are we actually talking about here? You know, we're doing this thing globally to prevent and to prevent, in quotes, you know, this thing. And the science of that is dubious <laughs> to begin with anyways, right? But it's uh, that's, I think, the most frustrating part of the conversation is just that it's so myopic and so manipulative the way that it's going that it's nobody's talking about the breadth of the situation, the allocation of resources, the unintended cost on the human energetics. And, um, you know, hopefully, and, and I'm seeing it, like you said, I'm seeing people become more aware. I mean, I think one great, you know, unintended consequence of this is people are listening to you more than ever. 
you know, I'm sure since this thing, like you came out and you were speaking in such a salient way in such a sound and grounded way that I I must have heard your name 60 times, you know, between the start of COVID and this. People sending me links to interviews you've done and people saying like, that sounds true. That's the harmonics of everything you're expressing is like, okay, that feels like something that's in tune with what my innate understanding of truth looks like. So again you know like resistance adaptation and uh, and consequence but um what a fucking ride we're on at this point it, it's a ride and it's it's so well choreographed you know i mm-hmm. think that we need to all remind each other of that the careful way in which fear and paranoia have been passed on from generation to generation to control power on the planet has been preserved perhaps better than any other biology or mindset or philosophy on the planet. And I'm fascinated by that, that people have learned, if you do this, you can get power. Mm. (laughs) And so if you can wield fear and guilt, you will get power. And we can measure that in the form of money, we can measure in the form of, you know, freedom to, to get resources for your family, you know, this kind of sequestration of of resources to that power can be measured over and over again and so we can certainly look at something like the you know the organized religion as being perhaps the you know one of the oldest versions of this and this is i think where shamanism has an opportunity to to be reborn at this higher vibration because uh you've had much more experience in this but I, and so i'd be interested on your perspective here but my sense is in the same way that the western religious mind found power in fear and guilt so did the shamanistic traditions being able to create the mystique around a shaman sure. or whatever it creates the fear that we don't have that power right. it creates this other kind of sense and also the guru model you know i am your gateway to god anytime that you put an intermediary between you and the divine you're harvesting power you know you're collecting because again fear and guilt can do that but also the aspiration and the calling to reconnect with our source is there that's an innate thing you know and so if religion becomes interstitial puts itself right in the middle everything's going to splash against that they're going to get a bunch of tower cathedrals are going to go up mosques are going to go up all of these things like power pushing in and the response is you know the desire pushing in the response is power and all these monuments get built and they harvest all of that because they're putting themselves in between us and our innate desire and i think the shamans have you know been a part of it's not just religion have done that gurus have been a part of that lots of different people but ultimately the truth is is that we are already divine and so we're connected to the divine and we just need to learn the tools and have somebody not say you know you have to go through me for this but maybe hold our hand and say here let me show you and you'll find it yourself and then they you know the great ones they just kind of smile and nod when you're like i spoke to the divine and like yes beautiful you know like you know they heard yourself yeah exactly exactly (laughs) exactly now you now you see you know and and that's and that's i think the the great the great ones that i've been able to experience that's that's always their thing they're not trying to say like well come back to me and you'll get this experience again i mean one of the shamans i had i remember he was having me do a visualization where he's like this was before the medicine is a boga shaman right uh you know i have that aboga painting up there but he goes um I want you to visualize that you're on the moon. Uh, And I was like, well, the medicine hasn't kicked in yet. And he's like, visualize that you're on the moon. There's someone there to meet you. I'm like, I'm sorry, the medicine hasn't kicked in. And and he's like, 
go to the moon. There's someone there. I was like, fine. So I go to the moon and my deceased grandmother was there. And I start having this amazing conversation, my first conversation with my deceased grandmother. And then I have this and you can see I'm crying. And, and, and then he taps me. He taps me with a loving hand and goes, remember, you don't need medicine to do this. And I was like, oh, wow. And then, and then the medicine kicked in 30 minutes later. But that's the, that's the revolution that's coming. You know, that's the revolution that's coming in our, in our ability to connect with the divine. And then the revolutions of health that are coming, being pushed by you know, people of your frontier, which is the meeting of the spiritual you know, ascension, the rise in harmonics and vibration, and then the physical understanding of, okay, this is the human body. These are the mitochondria. This is how we support the human being, and this is how we support the spiritual being in a really clean and beautiful way. Spectacular. And one image that comes to mind while you're in that, in you know, picturing perhaps the most stark architecture, I think, is, is comes out of the Mormon church. You know, those Mormon temples are so harsh in their design. These steep, you know, rigid straight lined things that the most unnatural of, of structures in some ways. And yet they're obviously reaching for the vertical, you know, mm -hmm. they're reaching up there. Uh, but you go to the national cathedral, you go to any mosque and everything else, you know, in the national cathedral and the mosque, you get a lot more of the curved shapes and the arcs and everything else. So a little bit more natural form, but in the end, everything's reaching upwards because it's part of a universal narrative that we've fallen ourselves into that God is up there. <laughs> And so it's really intriguing as we start to untangle something as simple of a mitochondria to understand that life force that we would understand as a syntropic event, as the syntropy that's that's organizing the chaos, you know, which of course is is in total flow of intention. The chaos is not out of its order, but the chaos in its in its relative disorganization as it comes into a syntropy in something like a mitochondria produces so much energy that it becomes its own vortex for creation. And so you get this creative force within a cell that knows what to do, that knows, you know, beyond its genomics, beyond everything else, it knows its drive for life. And I've certainly seen this on our microscope studying cancer cells, even a cancer cell in the end, in its you know highly damaged state, you've got a cell that now has on average 15 to 25,000 unrepaired genetic injuries that are impairing its ability to produce its own repair pathways, energetic pathways, all of this. That collapsing cell that has no more genomic opportunity to actually survive, it still has its drive for life. Mm. So deeper than the genomics, deeper than the ability to repair is this drive for life. And so since it can't repair anymore, since it can't reach out, it's become totally isolated. So you can't get a cancer cell until you have complete loneliness. You have to have total isolation, mm. which is interesting to think about social levels of can you know, no social doubt. cancer. And then again, we tell everybody go into their house, stay away from people, isolate. We're asking everybody to come become their own form of cancer at that philosophical wow. level. Yep. And so in the isolation, the cell now comes to believe it's the last semblance of life. It doesn't understand it's part of a 70 trillion celled organism that has you know, this whole abundance of life within it. And so in that though, it doesn't give up. Instead it says, well, the only option left is reproduction. And so it goes into this rapid cell division state, which we call a tumor or a cancer. But in fact, it's the most pure state of survival. It's the most pure state of drive for life. 
in the same way, I didn't know I was going to go into medicine historically. I was in construction and engineering and thought I was going that direction with my life. And then got the opportunity to go over to the Philippines with an aunt of mine, took a year off from, uh, before going into my engineering program and went over and birthed babies with this group of international midwives. And the first child I ever birthed alone was by accident. It was a woman was dropped off in our, on our doorstep at like three o'clock in the morning, rang the doorbell. Somebody rang the doorbell, ran off, and we opened the door. And it was this tragic story of this woman who uh, was nonverbal, had been born with severe brain damage, she was probably in her 20s, um, had been raped and had become pregnant and uh, in her kind of you know damaged state, unable to communicate ever in her life really. She's now hemorrhaging on our doorstep at three o'clock in the morning and uh, we put her in the van. We've never seen her before. We weren't prepared to help her out. We, we go rushing to the nearest hospital is the plan. And so we're driving at three o'clock in the morning through the streets of Manila, Philippines, and my aunt's driving and I'm in the back seat and I'm only like 19 years old at this point, no no medical experience that you would excuse for anything that would suggest I was qualified to be in this situation at all. And um, this woman is, you know, almost paralyzed in fear. You know, she's just staring into my eyes with this, this intense fear on her face, not knowing what she's doing. She doesn't understand she's pregnant. She doesn't understand what's going on. She's ha hemorrhaging and... Uh, She's suddenly, you know, lays back down and she's having a contraction that she doesn't understand. She just knows her body's just in so much pain. And this baby is born in my hands that's extremely premature and is no bigger than my hand, you know, from head to toe. It fits from fingertip to the to the crease in my wrist. And this this little blue baby is laying in my hand and I can't explain how light this thing feels like it doesn't compute in your brain that you're looking at a perfect human being because all the toes are there the fingernails are almost microscopic but you can see each one you can see the the, the little tiny semblances of of eyelashes and this little blue baby that lays in your hand for a moment to tell you just how miraculous it is this thing that we call life and in the same way that that cancer cell seems impossible to give life you know and then finds an out, it finds a drive for life and starts reproducing. That baby started breathing. And over the next couple of minutes as we're rushing the hospital, it pinks up and lets out its first cry. And it was the most faint sound you can imagine on the human side, but in my receiving of it, I literally felt like somebody was screaming into my soul, like screaming right. this intense cry, which I burst into tears at, at, in the back of this thing, partly just out of my stress and my own fear of being inadequate in this moment, but more just a sense of the injustice that was in that cry, the tragedy that was in that cry, but more than all of that, superseding all of that was, I am alive. This mm. simple message of, I am alive right now. And that child got, went on to die a couple of weeks later, you know, despite all the efforts at the little hospital and all of this, but it, it made it scream in the world. Yeah, And I feel like each of us right now have the ability to put that kind of song into the universe of, I am alive right now. Humankind may decay and go into its extinction event over the next few decades. The earth may collapse in its sixth grade extinction, but I am alive right now. And I'm going to participate in that through my vibration, through my effort to hit a new harmonic for myself. And I am not going to be dragged down by this, this you know, as you said, the, the most intense fear and guilt paradigm we've ever seen on the planet. 
despite that tenor, despite that extreme volume of those two vibrations, which are among the lowest we know, how many of us are finding this new freedom to vibrate higher? Mm. Which means the old structure, the old power of fear and guilt might be letting go. It might be in its last throes. Because if we can think this creatively and we can find each other right now, the people that need to find each other to innovate for the near future that we need tomorrow are finding each other. That means that you know everything that we've built, you know, and no, no better example than our monetary system. Our monetary system, as many people know, was created on, on the concept of death. It was all through life insurance. And so by betting on death, we created great wealth and we created, you know, New York life became the, the, the Fed ultimately and all of this. And so the Federal Reserve built its wealth on death and we still do this. And so we have a monetary system that's built on death, which of course is fueled by fear and guilt and this belief that this is some sort of endpoint. When we let go of all of that, vibrate at this higher level, we can create a new monetary system that's built on life because we now know that the biggest, you know, most resilient form of energy on the planet is biology. And so we just need a biologically backed currency. And so we're working on the idea of a currency that's backed by biologic resources such that every year that your currency is in, in a reserve bank, the reserve bank grows in its wealth because you've backed it by biologic assets. And so by backing a reserve bank with biologic assets, you start to accelerate the global economy. You accelerate wealth that's now not measured by some factitious U.S. dollar, but by actually biologic assets to create a more abundant, abundant earth. And what is a biologic asset? It can be just model. about anything. So any soil, water, air systems are at the foundation. But you can imagine that we need to start tr treating crops as a biologic asset instead mm. of a, a, a resource for food production. The food production is, is the happy side effect of the biology, which is exactly what the mitochondria is telling us. Because the mitochondria is not there to make ATP. It's there to produce energy. And the byproduct is, is food for the cell. Mm. We need to come to see farming and agriculture as, a, as our dance, our creative dance with biology. And if we do this right, it's going to, I think, be the second thing that we've done right as humans. The, the only first thing that I can find that we did right was music. <laughs> it's the only thing that we didn't yeah. screw yeah. up. Like we've never caused harm by the creation of music. It's never detracted from nature itself. I think it's Truth. augmented nature and, and plants love our music we've shown that you know that you put yo-yo ma next to a, a tree it's going to be a happy tree right you know and so with our vibration with the, that creative vibration if we created agriculture with the same mindset of we are going to send farmers into the fields to sing and not just vocal but they're going to sing with their energy field that's responding in this in this spiritual reactivity to the planet itself if you really ask a farmer who's in it, you know, and, and is, you know, fighting against all odds to be in it, why they're doing what they do, it's because they love walking across or riding across their land in the morning at dawn when you can smell the humus, that top living layer of soil, mm. and you can smell the dew on the grass as it's starting to dissipate into the air around you and mother earth is literally exhaling at that time of day and you're breathing in the ion charge and the intelligence of her deep vibrations within her that that filled her breath that night and so that's what a farmer loves that's why we're here to do what we call agriculture so if you're not growing a garden if you haven't had the opportunity to walk out on in a, in a little plot of land or walk to your your window into that pot of a tomato plant growing in the morning it doesn't take, but like you said, 
one leaf of one intelligent plant to inform your entire spirit of why you're here. You're here to be in communion in a co-creative relationship with Mother Earth herself. And we're going to stop building the cathedrals that are shooting to the sky. And we're going to start building cathedrals that go down into her earth. The whole earth becomes a cathedral. And this is that's the place to really worship. You know, the, There's no possible thing that we can do that's going to be more beautiful than what the mother has created. And I've been to some fucking rad places. You think the Vegas Strip is impressive. Hong Kong is impressive. New York is impressive. Burning Man is super impressive too. There's lights and fires and all kinds of cool shit. But you go to some place like the Grand Canyon and you just sit there in awe and you're like, holy shit. Like this is another level. This is far beyond what we're ever capable of doing. This is the cathedral that we have available to us at all times. And I think that's uh, another huge part of your message is just reminding people of that. I've never heard of the, you know, what you were talking about from the monetary system. It's almost like, it seems like it's, we had this idea of the gold standard where currency was backed by gold, which is kind of an interesting thing because gold is mostly for the ego to show its superiority. It's another just, you know, form of wealth that's beyond paper. But if we actually, in some ways, like backed it with life force, really how much more interesting is that it's a lot more interesting <laughs> i mean and then we could probably go deep down and i could try to understand that and uh and you know maybe another time over a over a matcha that <laughs> we can we can do that i want to go back a little bit so you're talking about the energetics of a human being resonating anywhere from dead at 3.5 to thriving at what was it 13 yeah and you can measure this yep so you come in and somebody's somebody's at you know a six what is the intervention that, and you said it takes a couple of years, but what is the intervention that you start to recommend? An intervention that listeners right now, or myself included, can say, well, I don't know exactly what my measurement is. You know, obviously we could go to your clinic or another clinic providing it, get the actual numbers. But assuming that we're not vibrating at the highest level that we possibly could, what are the things that you recommend that people do? I have never answered the question as to what just came to mind. And so I'm going to say this with my own excitement because I just learned something in this second, which is if you boil my whole clinic over its 10 years down to its essence, it's, it's the word ecstatic. <laughs> like ecstasy is literally the solution to a low phase angle. And the ecstatic experience that we go after, we can approach by many different angles. One of them is obviously nutrition. There's an ecstasy event around food that's been studied since the you know, origin of Western thought. And so if we go back to the ancient Greeks, uh, the guy who really pioneered this was Epicurus, who of course is now the eponym of, of Epicurus. Epicurus. And so uh, Epicurus was a philosopher who felt that the penultimate purpose of mankind was to experience pleasure. And he justified this through brilliant methods of deduction. And what he observed, and, you know, this is far be before we had the understanding of anatomy that we do today, but it's certainly been borne out by the anatomy, which is the entire brain is a manifestation of sensory uh, input and output. And so the brain, our whole neurologic system is there so that we experience our environment. And that experience does not happen in the gray matter in our head. The experience is a peripheral event, right? And so it's really the interaction of our skin or the surface of our eye or the vibration of our tympanic membrane in our ear. That's where the, this experience is happening. 
we have this extraordinary ability of humans, and this is, I think, what separates us from our, the animals, to divorce ourselves from that experience. Mm. And this is the tragedy of the human intelligence, is that the gray matter in our head has such an, a power to reorganize the data that's coming into it. It's, it's the ultimate CPU chip. It's that central processing unit that you would have in your computer on your desktop. That gray matter has such an ability to reorganize and find new patterns of belief or patterns of existence that it forgets its origin. It forgets the initial data that came in. A flower or a monkey in the, in the jungle never forgets its, its origin story of the data that's coursing into the CPU chip in the morning. It knows that it's experienced this because it's an element of nature. The monkey knows that it is in vibration with every other organism, the tree frog, the dragonfly, all of the insects in the jungle, all the way down into the microorganisms of the soil. It's got this community. It's got this sense of fellowship, and it never loses track of that. And so there's no ability for the monkey to develop the idea of, I should be the shaman monkey. <laughs> I should put myself between those other monkeys and God. What if you watched Lion God. King, and he's <laughs> like, I want to be Rafiki. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so only a human can create that construct and then, you know, superimpose that on the yeah. animal kingdom because and then the, then shackle ourselves with the shame and guilt about somebody that's doing it better and our relative position that the ego always measures everything in and then that's the thing that actually dampens ecstasy the most. You could do something great and then you look at somebody else with more followers and it's go, "Oh, well what I did didn't even fucking matter." And we have all of these all of these different things that keep us from that state of ecstasy. So how do we go into ecstasy? And it can be done with that that single tomato. I brought in these tomatoes this morning because uh, my colleague uh, Jesse was able to give me these from her garden last night. And you know, I, I mentioned it as we started. You know, Louis Armstrong's great quote of "There's only two things money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes." <laughs> and the idea that these tomatoes, when you bite into one, are a solar translation of the love of the sun. You know, and so there's so much sunshine that's put into a tomato, and all of the other plastids and mito you know, mitochondrion-like structures within that have produced the medicine within within the food and so we have lycopene and all these wonderful things in a homegrown tomato that you can't taste or experience in a, in a store-bought tomato because they've been taken out of their natural experience with this this fellowship between sun and soil and so all these hydroponically grown tomatoes are lacking this deeper intelligence of the nuance of energy morph energy transmutation that happens within that magic of soil and sun and so as we get closer and closer to the ecstasy of a tomato bursting in your mouth when you bite on it, what you're experiencing there is certainly a taste. You get the smell, you get the aromatics of it, you get all the medicines within all this. But deeper than that, you've got a message of provision. You've got this message of nurture that's coming from nature to give you this ecstatic experience of, I did nothing to grow this tomato. Mm. I, I I have no methodology within my body, within my know-how, how to create a tomato plant or bring it to fruiting. But here I am being gifted by Mother Nature in her abundance, this experience. And if you get into that experience enough and you bite into the next tomato with a more heightened attention to it, you can get yourself into this heightened state of, oh my God, I just experienced something that was super sensory. I actually got a pleasure DMT kind of release or probably more importantly, oxytocin, which is kind of our God hormone. Yep. And oxytocin gives us this extraordinary ability to connect cells. And so we call it the God hormone because of its ability for connection. 
And at the moment of orgasm, perhaps being the best example of this ecstasy kind of experience on the endocrine side, it's oxytocin and prolactin. And prolactin is one of the most potent anti-cancer compounds we've found. So you give a God signal of oxytocin and then prolactin, which gives this you know reconnection signal to cells and you get the opposite of cancer. And so when you go and eat that tomato, bring yourself to that ecstatic experience of that level of pleasure and focus. And to do this, you're going to do it the best when you have fellowship at the table, especially new fellowship that hasn't fallen into the ruts of patterns of beliefs about your partner. This is the danger of long-term relationship when you're in a human brain is you think you know that person sitting across from you. You don't know that person who's your partner. I don't care if you've been with them for 40 years. You don't know that person because they were just reborn a millionth of a second ago. (laughs) Right. And so because they are a quantum life form that's changing every millionth of a second or has the opportunity to change, the only way you can make that person look like, in your experience, what they were just a moment ago is if you imprint the past on, on the current or in the future. And so we have to release that. And a tomato could be that fellowship moment where let's share a meal such that at the end of this meal, we have let go of the belief of who one another are and are willing to accept a completely new life form on the other side of that plate. That's the prayer that we should start every meal with. I fucking love it. And, you know, so much also you could be carrying the grievances from the past. Oh, well, you know, she said this thing and this thing happened or he said this thing and blah, blah, blah. And I don't, and all of that just brings the past into the present and creates distance, which then denies you the ability for that ecstatic experience, which, yes, we can get from novelty. It's why, you know, I was in a polyamorous relationship for six years. And the novelty experience of a new date, it was what I really found was the biggest thing about it was that both people were radically present. Like you're not thinking about a damn thing on a first date that you're excited about. You're just right there, locked in, and it becomes ecstatic. And like you said, you know, with an existing partner, you have to work against that hedonic tolerance and really choose to drop everything from the past, go through those different practices that allow you to break through that and see them fresh, new in that moment, because they are new in that moment. Because as you said, we're quantum beings. And such a beautiful way to put it. And and even when you mentioned that the ecstatic experience was you know what you really recommend i mean i i got tears in my eyes because i could tell that that's that's true i just know it's true i feel that that's true and that's such a it's such a beautiful way to put it and something that we've you know distanced ourselves from to such a degree but after an experience of laughing really hard with your friends like that is medicine beyond compare you know like going through something like <clears throat> taking a few mushrooms on the beach you know i've i'm i remember laughing for with my friends or, or out on a ski mountain laughing for seven hours straight to the point where the next week i was just gliding i've never felt healthier and that's i think when people look at the research coming out in psychedelic medicine this is just one of the tools of course we want to learn how to do this without the medicine as i said like you don't need medicine to do this but one of the tools is it's not it's not the psilocybin that's curing depression or the MDMA that's curing PTSD. It's the transcendent experience itself. It's the ecstasy of that moment that's actually doing the healing. It's not this kind of, well, you insert this chemical and this chemical fixes a broken brain or a broken system, which is the model that most of us have on the allopathic side. Like, okay, you're a broken machine. We insert this thing, the machine will work. 
you know it's not that like as soon as we get back to that state of ecstasy we'll self-correct we'll heal ourselves. spot on and this is why i've come to love things like acupuncture because it adds nothing to my body and so my very first experience with this a woman walked into my clinic i said i left left the university in 2010 and moved out into rural virginia into one of the poorest communities um a food desert out in central virginia and I took over this old plumbing building and my son and I were renovating this plumbing building into something that could surmise as a clinic. And this woman walked up and said, I'm supposed to work with you. And I'm like, great, and you do drywall painting. Like I was in my tool belt, sure enough, it's hot, it's Virginia day. And um, we were just in, in this parking lot. She said, no, I do acupuncture. I had no idea, like I'm coming out of my allopathic, you know, cancer researcher, you know, marbled halls of academia. I was like, isn't that that needle thing? I think it was my response. And she's like, <laughs> suddenly realized that she had an uphill climb with this guy. And she said, well, instead of me trying to convince you it works or tell you about it, why don't you just experience it? Well, unbeknownst to her and you know, unbeknownst really to my entire community because I had really kept this thing so suppressed in my experience. Um, I had been suffering from severe depression for a couple of years and to the point of suicidal ideation where I'd, I'd picked the bridge that I could drive off of, which would make it look like I fell asleep on the way home from a 36-hour shift at the hospital. Like I had gotten a life insurance policy that had a suicide payment. Like I'd researched the hell out of that thing to make sure that my kids would be taken care of all this. Like that's the degree of sure. darkness that was in my mind and how little I was valuing my capacity at that point. And I hadn't gone any antidepressants. I, you know, I, I hadn't actually really internalized the belief that I had depression. I just knew I was, I was in this ex, ex, extreme state of existence. I was being stretched is what it felt like and near a breaking point. And she got me on this table, I was on a massage table and I'm looking up through the skylight above this table and uh, she does this pulse reading, which I had never experienced or even heard of before. And, and within minutes, she's telling me my life story by just reading my mm. radial pulse. And as a physician, I suddenly, and as you know, grew up in a Judeo-Christian mind, I suddenly went to kind of that paranoia thing of like, is this a witch doctor? Like, how does she know this stuff? Like, right. what is going on here? And she was very good, just talked me through the biology of pulse and what's a reading in Chinese, you know, science and all of this. And Kind of relaxed into this and she said that you know pretty much there's enough you know chaos in your body right now that i think that the only thing you can handle comfortably right now is is a five needle balancing uh, therapy and so she threw a little needle in both wrists on top of both feet and then threw that fifth needle right at my belly button and felt literally like i'd been shocked like it was like 240 volts right into my belly for just a split second it was enough to like make a noise and then it was gone five needles sitting there. She said, I'm gonna give you a moment just to relax here and just experience this and I'll be back in 15 minutes. So I'm laying there on the back, on my back. And it's important to realize that this may, may have also not just been acupuncture. This was the first time anybody asked me to do nothing for 15 minutes. My whole life I had been in this frenetic production phase mm. and striking that from childhood all the way through. No kindergarten teacher ever told me to stop and do nothing for 15 minutes. Nobody had ever told me to do that. And so this woman with this five needle system in me says, do nothing for 15 minutes. Just be. Just be. So I'm staring up through this, this you know, glimpse of the sky, this little skylight, 
blue sky, beautiful you know, day in the middle of Virginia, and suddenly this little tiny white cloud starts to float across the, the, my vision of the skylight. And I suddenly became so present with that cloud that I felt like I could taste it. I was like just having this moment of, my God, that's the most real thing I've ever seen is mm. that thing. Because for the first time in my life, I was paying attention. Mm. And in that presence of being, I had an ecstatic event with this cloud. And in that, I instantaneously solved for depression. And I went home knowing that something profound had happened, but within three days realized I was so full of life, so clear on what I wanted to do next, so so full of energy for the next thing. I was so curious about the next thing. And I realized I had lost curiosity mm. for life. And that's probably the best description of depression in some ways is the loss of curiosity because it's phenomenally interesting to be alive. You've never been that, that that next body in a millionth of a second. You've never been there. You've never had the opportunities that body has. You've never had the knowledge. It's so interesting and curious that sitting right here, I have my new distillation of a 10-year clinic that I've literally spent thousands of hours and I have whole teams that think about how do we translate what we're doing. And just sitting here with you in this space held between these incredible pieces of art that depict indigenous wisdom and the future of mankind, suddenly this new word comes into mind of it's just about ecstasy. And I've said pleasure many times, but the word ecstasy, I think, captures it. it on a whole different level, which is if a cloud can make you ecstatic and heal your depression instantly, what God are we reaching for when we ask for a pharmaceutical intervention? What God are we reaching for when we admit ourselves to a hospital? We have to realize we're walking into cathedrals of the old paradigm when we walk into a hospital system, when we walk into these things that have literally been built out of the fear of death. An ICU is, is a multi-trillion dollar construct of the fear of death. We are trying so hard to beat back death that we somehow, in our extraordinary capacity for justification, we come up with this belief that it's reasonable to spend half a million dollars in the last seven days of somebody's life to give the appearance that we've tried everything we could. It, it makes no sense on so many levels. And, you know, and maybe in, you could argue, maybe a surgical ICU where somebody gets in a car accident and has some battlefield medicine and makes sense. But to have medical ICUs where we're taking end-stage chronic disease and putting it into these extreme experiences, instead of putting that person into a space where they could have an ecstatic event with their family and realize they are connected and they can heal the relationships that have been estranged. They can pass on their wisdom now so that they have a legacy that's immeasurable because they've had a moment to peacefully be in silence and do nothing with their family instead of constantly doing something. Don't celebrate the next Thanksgiving. Don't do this or that. Don't rush around doing anything. Take a moment and just look at a cloud together on your backs in the backyard. Lay down in the backyard and stare up as a family at the bottom of at the branches of a tree against the sky. The interface of, of the centropy of tree branches crossing patterns against a blank slate of a blue sky is one of the best mechanisms I've found for reaching that that highly practiced meditative state of complete silence in the mind. There's such complexity to the patterns you're about to look through that have nothing to do with your own personal construct that it will give you plenty of space to look through those patterns and find the beauty within yourself. And so do that with the children in your family and break them free to become in a millionth of a second somebody who's never existed in your family line. 
because your family line has never taken that pause together, has never celebrated at this level of ecstasy together. And so this is my excitement is that, you know, while we see the tenor and the volume picked up on fear and guilt, we've never before been so easily let loose into a new paradigm of ecstasy. So beautiful, man. And I think, uh, you know, my friend Aaron Alexander, he's done a lot of good research on the difference between looking at something close up like a phone and they've actually measured cortisol release and actually all the hormone endogenous chemicals that get released when we're looking at something close or we're looking out at the expanse and what greater expanse than the whole open sky, right? So it's actually gonna trigger a different, from a materialist reductionist standpoint state, as well as the emotional, you know, psychological, you know, transcendent experience that we're gonna have as well. It's it's operating on both both aspects. And then in addition, maybe that maybe that is just that's just one way like i remember with my family growing up and my family wasn't really they didn't know all the things and they weren't thinking about things in necessarily this way but they came up with an idea and they called it the bell dance and with the bell dance anybody we had a bell a little triangle bell and anybody could ring it i had three older stepbrothers and i had three younger three younger sisters and <clears throat> the sisters were a little young at that point but anybody could ring it and put on a song and the whole family had to drop what they were doing and dance to that song and anybody the kids no matter what could just ring the bell and everybody would have to do it and it was enforced by the family and you know if you were busy and you're doing something like oh fuck somebody ran the fucking bell and you could come in frustrated but the moment that whatever mc hammer or michael jackson or what madonna was playing on there and you start dancing and laughing with your family like at that point you never finished that bell dance not a better person without the family being closer than it was before and that's an ecstatic experience and of course i you know i'm a big fan of ecstatic dance another way to do that another practice to bring people together breath work you know sitting down together and breathing together deeply changing the physiology and the psychology with you know taking those deep breaths whether it's the wim hof method or something deeper like shamanic breathing or just simple you know box breathing practices together there's so many things that are available and we're just leaving them outside the door, not recognizing how absolutely crucial and what an invaluable tool it might be to help really bring people together in that togetherness, which is the you know, antecedent of these ecstatic experiences. You, know, you can have them on by yourself as well, like you did with the cloud, but when you can do them together with somebody, then those bonds form and then that, there's just something really, really special about it. The Nobel Prize winner for the discovery of telomerase. She's a brilliant woman who's been, you know, really on the forefront of the biologic concept of longevity. You know, like how do we build these telomeres on the ends of our DNA strands that would, you know, allow us to do kind of infinite amount of, of cellular division without degradation of the the genomic information. So these bumper blocks called the telomeres. Uh, were considered the the holy grail. If we could figure out how to build telomeres, uh, and then she discovered telomerase, which is the enzyme that builds the telomeres, and then, she, of course, everybody's rushing to find a drug to figure out how to turn on telomerase so that we can have a drug to create longevity and all this stuff. And no, no drug has worked itself out. And she now travels the country explaining that the best way to turn on telomerase is through spiritual song and dance. Mm. And she's looked at, you know, Baptist, black Baptist choirs all the way to shamanic song and dance, ecstatic dance all the way through. And all of them do the same thing, which <laughs> is to extend telomeres. 
And so when you were doing that with your family, you were literally giving a longevity event uh, to the family because of that state of ecstasy that you guys were creating through song and dance. And so again, I think if, if we could bring ourselves to a state of understanding agriculture as a song, as a, a, a symphonic event, a symphony of human experience and human vibration with the plant, with the soil, with the sun, and then take that into our, our adaptation of, of architecture, I have the same awe that you do of of something like New York City. My my daughter lives there and is very active in the community there. And I, I love being in New York City for a few days uh, because yeah. it just like it's like that experience of like you know plugging yourself into the Tesla battery or something yeah. like it's like all right I'm recharged I'm gonna go out in the world and do my thing again. But can you imagine the beauty? that we will create when we go build a city in a hundred years where we have relearned the templates of architecture within a new physics that doesn't have to do with straight lines. Because straight lines are horrifically unstable structures and, and nature just doesn't do them. So it right. does everything it can do to disrupt straight lines. It doesn't like that pattern. So what will happen when we start to design within a spiral? What happens when we start to design buildings that have no linear pathway within them? We sit here in a in a room that is full of exquisite examples of, of indigenous wisdom and, and human intelligence. And when you look at the forms that keep drawing your eye, like this skull of this you know buffalo or something buffalo, on the wall yeah. here, there's not a single straight line there. And so that's why your eye is drawn. And it ignores the fact, your eye literally ignores that all of these beautiful relics are in a square room. The only thing it's ignoring is the square because it has no construct to really embrace those straight lines. And so what happens when we when we cease with the, the, the rectangular box that we call a house or a room and let the mind loose into a much more creative environment? What happens when schools stop being limited by the concrete, you know, cinder block structure that's been the cheapest way to build these things, same way we build prisons? What happens when we build prisons that are actually underground networks of tunnels that they dwell in at night to be charged by Mother Earth and then they emerge onto the surface of the planet in the morning to become a workforce for a green a green revolution that's re literally the human dance with nature? And they can't ever go back to some recidivism because they are now in an ecstatic state of being alive. Right. The only thing that would drive a human mind to a criminal behavior is the is a belief of scarcity. And when you're in nature, you're so overwhelmed by the abundance that it eliminates the possibility of, of this scarcity mindset. And so whether we're talking about criminality at the correctional level or we're talking about the criminality of a current kindergarten class, I, I, I see them very similar to each other. We've taken away from both of those populations the possibility of real creative you know, embrace. And you look, at, you look at indigenous cultures, like all the ayahuasca I've ever done, it's a circular maloca. It's always a circular maloca. Even the very first place was a yurt structure. And the yurt structure was, that was where I had my vision quest. It was a yurt out in the mountains. You know, I was outside and then I would sleep in the yurt and there was just powered by, you know, heat from a fireplace. And these things that we don't really recognize, I, I listened to Dr. Ibrahim Karim, who talks about this phenomenon called biogeometry and it's very metaphysical, but he goes deep into how, you know, the circular structures make a big difference. But, and, and so there's all of this emergence of all of these things. And I can't help but think, not only do you have so much wisdom about you know, the human body, but you also have so much wisdom about the way that society could shift and, and we could reorganize ourselves. 
again, and also another great model, Burning Man. I mean, it's this giant fan pattern where it's all rolling out a city of 60,000 people in a circle and all of the structures that are created within that. And then the, the, uh, the ethos of if you see a piece of trash, you pick it up. You know, it's called moop. It doesn't matter if it's your piece of trash, you pick it up because you're all a part of this playa, this little sandy patch. We have all of these things, but then there's also this kind of sacred rage that comes up when we have these things that are not only great ideas, but they're also backed by science. And they're also, you know, your understanding of how to deal with the soil, how to deal with the human body. And meanwhile, like, the way that this information is being disseminated for one if it's a little bit too far against the narrative it's going to be censored for two otherwise it's just going to be ignored you know by the mainstream media and it's just this kind of like sacred rage that comes up that says no like no like we can't we can't be kind of controlled by these structures we gotta speak it over and over again and use all the mediums that we can and and do our best and Thankfully, there's been a decentralization of the ability to reach out to people. Podcasts and different things have allowed information to be disseminated. And as much as they try to censor YouTube and everything, something else will emerge in its stead. Um, but this is the shit that we need to be talking about. This is the shit that needs to be out there and proposed. And people can do it in a logical way and just just really kind of lay out the options and say, look all right, this is the current plan. This is the lockdown plan. Here's the conflicting research on masks. Here's the conflicting research on social distancing and whether it's effective. Here's some contrary theories about the virome. Here's some other conventional theories about this. And here's what we could do with the resources. And let's just talk about this and then see, you know, give real information and allow people to make like informed decisions. And uh, I don't know what it's going to take to get to that point and i think for everybody listening and for us out there we just keep sharing as much information as possible just keep going out spreading it the way we can but i can only imagine that the potential for a tipping point is out there where like all of a sudden people just aren't watching the fucking news and one news channel on a deep cable channel 745 or direct tv channel 612 you know is like all right now there's a new news kind of like gaia tv or something like that like here's a new source of information and this is what we're going to share. And then the more people that are ready for that, the more they demand it, the more that it'll come into existence. And then I think things can really pick up steam because this is the, these are the, these are the real conversations. Yeah. Yeah. And I, as an avenue towards that future that we all want, or at least a few of us want is one opportunity we have is to let go of the belief of of the war that you mentioned earlier on cancer. We need to let go of our easy mentality of war when it comes to the current paradigm because there's so much energy being poured into the anti-mask, anti-vaccine, anti-lockdown, anti-government. The anti-movement is taking up so much human energy right now which of course goes on to reinforce the pro of every one of those. Sure. And so anti is a very weak state of being. Sure. You, know, you can you never actually create change through an anti platform. And that's my fear for what just happened with our presidential, you know, event as the the anti Trump or anti previous paradigm was so loud and so convicted. That's what drove, you know, one of the biggest elections of, you know, turnouts we've ever seen. And then suddenly it's not going to surprise me when we wake up in January being like, what did we vote in? Mm. We voted in an anti-platform. 
what happens when you have an anti-platform? And the answer is nothing. And in that vacuum, the old momentum accelerates. And so everything that led to this moment that we weren't liking, whether it be the draconian lockdown measures all the way to uh, you know, quantitative easing by the Federal Reserve, which is trying to crush you know, the Chinese economy and is taking us closer and closer to the brink of collapse of the US dollar. So it doesn't matter if you're talking macroeconomics or medicine or education or you know, social norms, all of these systems coming to this brink are gonna accelerate that. That energy is gonna have much more room because we did an anti-event as a community. We need to stop that behavior and we need to become proactive. You and I and everybody listening to this event right now, you know, let's just get ourselves really present right now. Let's take a deep breath for a second. I'm just gonna ground myself actually to do this right. So just feet on the ground. We have the opportunity right now to begin to rehearse the future for those that will become awake. And this is the opposite of a new woke paradigm. This is an awake that is ecstatic. This is not a, an awake that, that congratulates itself for some enlightened viewpoint or some neoliberal perspective. This is awake on the ecstatic level. So bring yourself into a state of ecstatic awareness of your fingers and toes right now. Feel your toes, wiggle them a little bit. Remember you've got these legs. Remember you've got these thighs. Remember you've got this pelvis that holds the energy of your soul. Remember you have this belly as to where you make decisions. Remember you have this chest where you emanate the emotional love and, and gratitude for the universe. Remember you have this head that is not there to be encased in brain activity, but is actually your gateway to the solar environment, the, the, the heavens, if you will. And so open that top gate and open the lower gate, and then let's rehearse the future for those that will become ecstatically awake and create the future that we want. And if 100,000, if a million, if 300 million, if 7.8 billion people will join in this electric ecstatic experience, there's no vacuum to be filled by the old fear and, and guilt paradigm. Religion will have no foothold. Spirituality and our connection to our God force becomes the dominant paradigm. There's no currency based on death and decay that can rationally control us because we have found an ecstatic state of abundance that exceeds the concept of need for money and we start to go into an exchange environment of resources an exchange environment of true valuation in the form of biologic co-creation we could start to build cities that are are built within soil and rock structures we could build things that look more like cave dwellings than skyscrapers we could build things that uh, instead of cell phone towers are integrated communication networks through the fiber optic cables that we call mycelium of the fungi in the soils around us. We could build an ecstatic environment where just seeing another human being running naked through a field reminds us of the vitality of this particle moment that we call human life and would bring us into an awe state such that any corruption of that, that nakedness, any corruption of, of the sexuality in there, it becomes impossible because everything is held in its highest state of awe and, and reverence for this thing called life. 
And then we will experience pleasure and this ecstatic experience on a whole different level because we are not perturbed by straight lines that pierce into some sky in search of some invisible godlike power that we would be afraid that we would miss out on. We're going to build curving networking systems. That's the co-creative process we have the potential to engage in. And so as the draconian measures march on and you are faced with a decision of am I going to wear a mask or not, if I'm going to risk the biologic injury of a vaccine or not, you, you start creating your own boundaries. And instead of putting your energy into a system that says I need to go you know, fight against the vaccine, I'm going to create a new system where I'm going to prove out the biology of the innate immune system to prove that I'm far more efficacious in preventing any viral illness through the support of the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system, this antibody response of a vaccine that has nothing to do with our relationship to viruses, becomes almost ludicrous in its argument. And we can show that through 30, the last 30 years of science already knowing that. We can show that through storytelling and narrative around the beauty of your innate immune system that would wake you up to this. And so as you move forward, don't become anti, become pro, become so pro-life, so so pro-fundamentally alive and ecstatic that, that any other option is impossible. And suddenly your biggest release, you know, ultimately at the end point becomes what we now call death. And it's going to be this liberation from this particle moment that will be the only thing that supersedes your experience of life and its creative potential you will become something far greater than your biologic experience, your particle moment at that moment. And the creativity in, in that death moment is extremely logarithmic. And so I want to, to give us space to look into that a little deeper as, as we conclude here, but I just want you guys to feel what you're feeling right now. Even though we're, we're disconnected by the temporal space of recording this and your ears hearing this, we have superseded that now with our energetic focus on our co-creative capacity. And the electricity you feel in your body is the same electricity I feel in my body right now. It is solar energy that's being broken down into a new electromagnetic field. I am glowing as a sun would. I am glowing as that star in the, in the galactic humanity of 7.8 billion suns burning on this this planet right now and I, I can merge with you and I can experience your ecstatic experience and I can celebrate the fact that you're alive and you're a healing machine and you are a rebirthing machine. You are a birthing machine that supersedes any previous notion of who you were and you're now new every millionth of a second. And so ask everybody around you to let go of the old self, let go of their remembrance of you. Stop celebrating the birthdays and, and celebrate the rebirth days, the new birth dates, which is now which is now, which is now. Let go of that temporal concept of aging and start to come into this eternal realization that you are here and always have been here and you're going to continue. And so what are you going today? What are you going to do today? I, I can't wait for you to reach out and just touch the hand of another human being with the amount of electricity you have in your hand and just say, I love you, I can see you. You are beautiful. You're exquisitely beautiful. Look at your eyes. Look at, look at the incredible patterns in your eye. It's like a supernova of color, and it's constantly changing by the light of day and the time of your eyes are so beautiful, and the way in which it reflects light back at me as I realize that you are seeing me overwhelms me with gratitude. Your eyes are so beautiful. 
thank you for looking at me. Amen. In my in my personal spiritual experiences, I've felt what it was like to be in the space beyond the body. And as you know, when you're in palliative care and you talk to the people who came back from that ceremony, that that portal, that threshold that is death, and they experience that radical unicity, that love that holds no record of wrong, wrong that forgiveness that extends and the acceptance and the connectedness of all things. I've thought about what it is and how beautiful that state is and then reflected also at the things that we'll miss, the rain on our skin, the taste of a pear, the kiss of your beloved's lips, the laughter playing some trivial sport with your friends, swimming in the water, walking with bare feet on the grass, watching the clouds. These ecstasies await us if we just step outside of the prisons of our own cognition, our own fear of enjoying life so much that when it gets taken away, we'll be too disappointed. But to step in like a warrior poet and live it full, no matter how many times you get hurt or no matter how many times it's painful, step into that ecstasy every chance you get, not because it's permanent, but precisely because it's not. Now, okay, may we all leave this life in the close proximity of our family, our friends, those we care about the most. May we look them in the eye and look up to the heavens and say, today is a good day to die because I really fucking lived. It's why we choose the pain <laughs> is because of the capacity to taste and feel everything you just described. Uh, a soul in its energetic state has no, it, it's, it's in its vacuum state, right? There, it, like, the, like the space between the sun and the earth that is unwarmed by the, the effort of the sun, the soul doesn't get to experience the heat of the sun and so it picks the pain of a physical body. It picks the isolation of a, a low vibration human experience. <laughs> it picks that so that it can see and taste and hear and feel everything described here. And so when you are in pain, whether it be spiritual pain, physical pain, psychological pain, acknowledge that within that pain is the antidote to the journey you're on the antidote, the medicine that you are seeking is inside the pain. It's going to remind you the pain is there to take you into the present moment. We tend to recoil from pain. In our clinic, we try to retrain ourselves to go into the pain. Because inside that pain, 
The pain is only a neurologic experience that's very temporal. It only lasts a few split seconds, and it has to keep recreating itself to be present for anything more than that. But if the pain is recreating itself, it's there to bring attention to some space within our body very specifically that holds an old injury, that holds an old trauma within us, typically an emotional trauma is at the foundation of that disruption that is now leading to the pain. So go into the pain, ask yourself, what is the emotional trauma? What is the emotional memory in this space? And then you know what to forgive. And as you forgive that and you replace that with gratitude and you replace that with the love that comes from seeing the beauty in it, you will not only heal that space, not only resolve the pain, you'll find out why you're alive. And in that vital particle state of living, you get to experience all things. But in letting go of it, it's beautiful to realize that our narcissistic human story wants to believe that something ends at that point. But if we learn from a tree, a single elm tree falls in the forest. If we genetically sequence its, its wood just one year later, 100,000 species have replaced it. That one species giving life to 100,000 species in just 12 short months, the cycle of one season throughout. 100,000 species birthed from your organic material as you give up that physical moment. And every single atom, every single molecule, every single mineral within that body that gives up its life to create the new biodiversity, the new adaptive universe that now grows on that that galactic experience of life that's now is going to remember the story of that human life and so as you decay back into nature you will be remembered for what you pass forward that's exciting because it means that if you will rebirth right now and then birth next moment without the the re without the holding on to the past so that you could become completely new you could pass on a message of generative capacity, co-creative capacity, unweighed down by the, the destructive, consumptive history of humankind. And so I believe that this generation, the generations alive today have picked this moment, 7.8 billion souls leaping into these physical bodies at once to erase the history by our surrender of it, our letting go of our past so that we can birth something completely new so that those organisms that would grow out of me in the decades to come would know such a state of ecstatic creativity that they would actually go into a pro-viral state where instead of viruses adapting due to damage and decay, they would create viral messages that are about generation and about freedom from pain, freedom of restriction. And the generative quality of humankind is going to shift because the microbiome around us, the stress that causes viruses to move, releases us into a state of adaptation due to stress, what if the viromics become an adaptation due to joy? What world would be created if plant life, biologic life within our soils and human life was passing on viromic genomic transfer of communication about an ecstatic joy state rather than that of injury, harm, and destruction? The genomics of this planet, when it sings a story of joy, will birth babies that have no idea of their origin story because it's been let go of and they are now free to create a new history free to create a new experience of ecstasy 
maybe so. And all my brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters and mothers and sons out there, remember that you're wild. You're made of wolf fur and shark teeth and butterfly wings and the bark of an elm tree. And the beetles, bright, shiny, iridescent skeleton. You're made of all that. You are not separate from the mother. You are not separate from earth. You are earth. You'll go back to her one day. And you are her right now in all of that capacity. And you are so much more powerful than you believe you are. And that the narrative tells you you are that powerful. Claim your sovereignty. Claim your power. Claim your ecstasy. And let's bring this whole beautiful planet and all its people and all the creations into the new era of our potential destiny. Amen. Dr. Zach Bush, my brother, you are a fucking legend. <laughs> Thank you so much for this, man. Thank mm. you so much. I know people are going to want want more. Uh, where would you Where would you recommend people to go if they want to continue down this track and and find more of what you what you're talking about? Uh, just the the portal into that whole world is zachbushmd.com. Zachbushmd gets you into kind of our knowledge base. I dive into some biologic topics there. We have a new program that we've just launched. We have a, a GoFundMe program that's doing well, that's funding up a number of doctors that can bring together free education for the community and not behind firewalls and all that. So we have a monthly topic that we've tackled. We tackled the virome a couple of months ago. We've tackled uh, sleep, uh, fasting, nutrition. So tackle these big subjects uh, and then uh, we'll cover that for a month of social media content and education uh, some blog and, net and newsletter content there for you and then we have uh, a monthly live uh, experience where 10 15,000 people will, will come on uh, to our environment and we'll we'll share a, a deep dive on a little uh, on the topic and then open it up to Q&A for the community so that's ways in which we can start to create this hyper intelligent experience around science again and our goal is to reclaim science and the public narrative and connection to it because we see the deg degradation of it so fast with the media taking it over and so this is our answer to that if we can do this as a community we can actually reclaim science and knowledge for our own uh, productive step forward rather than a reactive fearful step forward so zachbushmd.com can get you all of that uh, it'll dive you into our science around soil and how you know ancient soils have put forward an antidote to the most toxic things we do, Roundup, glyphosate, herbicides, pesticides within our food system, which ultimately break our connection to nature through, through disrupting our self-identity. Uh, it takes you through the science of how soil has an antidote to that, how these ancient soils in the bacteria and fungi can help you reconnect to your own nature. Um, we have... You know, everything rolling out in 2021 is super exciting. We've been working for five years to roll out what is all kind of hitting at the same time in January. We hope to have uh, the, the public launch of our educational environment, which will be a, a co-creative space for regenerative systems, thought and education for all levels, whether you be kind of high school or all the way to graduate level or act out there as practicing regenerative mindset individuals. Um, so we're working there to help reconnect our understandings when we say regenerative farming or agriculture, we're really talking about 
a, a model for all of these other things we've talked about. And mm-hmm. further on in 2021, we will be launching the, the bigger environment of this co-creative space that we've been working on to reimagine the internet in the form of mycelium and uh, microbial and mitochondrial energy. How do we reproduce that in the form of, of, of a software environment or an online environment where we could co-creatively you know, build this future much faster than we can, can do it in the, in the marble talls of academia or the rest? And so we're re- ready to turn the whole world into a petri dish of intelligence and, and create that quantum uh, intelligence there. So uh, stay in touch on ZachBushMD.com. Uh, you know, I'll also be tracking that through all my Instagram with announcements as all the products start coming out. Uh, we have a really exciting energy company that's coming, uh, hitting also in 2021. We're working uh, with Stanley Brothers to, to help farmers understand uh, that as we move into this era of kind of rediscovery of hemp, that we have to understand that that can become one of our most potent greenhouse gas problems on the planet if we don't see this as a systems issue. If we see this as just a product out there, we will kill the planet faster. And so the hemp industry is becoming a really good illustration of how we tend to innovate in the old paradigm. We need to innovate within biologic systems and understanding of cycles of carbon such that a plant like hemp becomes generative rather than destructive as it currently is. And so these are you know, ways in which you can stay engaged if you're a family office or foundation or uh, you know, high net worth individual qualified investors. We have mechanisms for you to get involved in this kind of biologic rethinking of macroeconomics and structures like that. And so you can stay in touch uh, through the, that same pathway as we roll those products out over the next few months. So um, it's interesting timing because I started all of this you know, work on my side 10 years ago having no idea that we would be in a 2020 that looked like today. Of course. And of course, it just, you know, from my vantage point, looks like a million open doors. And uh, this was the most exciting year I've ever lived through because it was my embodiment of, of that sentence that Lynn Twist always gives me goosebumps over. Lynn Twist started the Pachamama Alliance and, uh, you know, bringing attention to the Amazon and, and to the desperate nature there and she has this extraordinary sense that she may have gotten from Warner Earhart back in the day when they launched the hunger project globally uh, but it's it's the sense that says the most powerful thing on the planet is an idea whose time has come hmm. and I believe that today we are seeing the most powerful thing on the planet is the idea of humanity we have a new opportunity and it's time has come and I think it's called human yeah beautiful man well I encourage everybody to check it out I have to, I would be remiss if I didn't ask one final question. So fast forward to March, somewhere around there, COVID vaccine is out, lots of pressure, potentially travel restrictions. If you don't take it, what do you recommend people do? Well, you know, on the on the practical level, educate the hell out of yourself on this. Um, I've got a two-hour free, you know, download for you uh, called the Virome, ZachBushMD.com. Watch that content. Give it to your doctors and tell them this is this is the thirty years of science you're standing on, and um, be resistant to that. We'll be coming out with you know more information packets there so that you can provide that to your health practitioners. Um, if you want to get engaged on on you know a family foundation or or big network kind of level, we have uh, a, a philanthropic fund called the Human Resiliency Fund that we've, we're just launching this week. And the Human Resiliency Fund is really uh, there to very rapidly 
actually create a documentary film narrative around the innate immune system, which is proving that we don't maintain relationship to viruses through adaptive antibodies. We, we do it through the innate immune system, which is inborn into all of us at the moment of conception, and it continues through the moment of birth. We don't have an adaptive immune system that would be assisted by something like a vaccine until six months of age. And yet at seven days of age, we have 10 to the eighth viruses in our stool. Uh, and so in every gram of stool, 10 to the eighth viruses at seven days of age with no adaptive immune system present, it means we don't stay in relationship with, with all of those viruses through an adaptive immune system. So the Human Resiliency Fund is there to rapidly build a large amount of capital so that we can, through a philanthropic way, not only prove the science and tell the science has been well proven, not only coordinate the scientific labs that need to prove out that we can stay in, in relationship to c coronavirus as we always have through the innate immune system, we also are through the same fund mobilizing community resources. And so one of the projects we're mobilizing is a regenerative growing food system that is put on uh, parking lots throughout the heaviest hit food deserts in the country that were, of course, hard hit by COVID. Uh, we can put regenerative food systems in there where we get the first harvest within six weeks, third harvest by 10 weeks uh, to install on parking lots. And so the idea is we need to take our food deserts and build resilient human immune systems through its reconnection to, to good, good food systems. We're putting those in cooperation with food banks. The food yeah. banks can then then uh, create regional demand for uh, regenerative food systems. Another project is through the California uh, uh, school system that we hope to scale up. Alice Waters project, which is uh, a you know regenerative food uh, plan for five days a week, every lunch meal is an educational experience where the kid is steeped in new nutrients and has got an educational experience on the placemat that it's served on where we are taking them through a journey of culinary experiences around the world where they'll experience the food of the Middle East and start to learn about the plants that grow there, the architecture there, the people that grow there, their, their value systems. And so she's got a beautiful system that needs to be scaled up immediately because our children need to be freed up from the fear of, of this thing and be given the message that here is your medicine of the future is the food sitting on your plate today. So these are some examples of the project that will be funded up through the Human Resiliency Project. And uh, I can't wait to see that be a clear answer in March to say, uh, we can that fast build the body of knowledge, build the body of science, build the body of narrative and storytelling so that people aren't just, you know, feel like they're they're bereft or left alone to fight this, you know, multi-billion dollar, multi-trillion dollar now uh, vaccine industry that's coming out with this common narrative. We can have not only an alternative narrative, we can have a truth narrative. Yeah. And that truth narrative is about your power and resistance. So try to put your your energy right now away from the fear of the anti-vaccine anti thing. And we're going to channel so much energy to a proactive message so that you and your physicians can make the right decisions. In regards to the rest, the travel restrictions and all the other inevitabilities, that's social change that needs to happen. Mm. And we need to reclaim this nation. We gave up the reins a long time ago. Democracy does not exist in this country as it once did. We need to reclaim that democracy. We need to reclaim the voice of local governance. And so if you need to do anything right now, it's between now and January, you need to be empowered to reach out to your governor and your local mayor and start to reach out to your sheriffs. The sheriffs are the law enforcement that is constitutionally based. And they were there to give you an antidote to the government. And so the sheriff and your local mayor and your governor 
governor are the structures that have been put in place by the founding fathers so that we would be able to sustain the democratic side of our equation. We have forgotten that whole side of the equation mm. and we think we have a federal government system. The federal government was there as a, a stopgap between you know, the, the governors and the, all the local uh, leadership that we would be, had put in place. And so all of the structure is there for us to re, regain and reclaim democracy. But I believe it won't realize its full potential until we say what we're going to do with that democratic message and that democratic capacity. We need to give power to the voices that have been suppressed. We need to lift up the minorities that have been taken away their voice. We need to lift up women whose voices have been too long suppressed. We need to lift up our children and give them a voice mm. and let them create the future that we would all manifest through a new democratic society. Yeah, that's beautiful. And just, and, and, you know, let, let everybody know if this is fair. I think no matter what you decide with your vaccine, understand that there's been a, an effort to trivialize vaccines. I saw some memes going around about the flu shot and it had something from Game of Thrones. It's like, winter is coming, get your flu shot. And it was all trivial in this kind of joking way that it's like, oh yeah, you just get your flu shot. People please understand that this is no trivial decision. And if you want it, you know, and you do your research, you know, bless you. You know, we all have the sovereign right to do it. But the adjuvants that are in these vaccines, the aluminum, the mercury, the formaldehyde, which are necessary to create the, the <clears throat> necessary to allow the vaccines to work, they bear a heavy cost. And so it's not trivial, you know. And so whatever you decide, you know, just know that there's there's gravity to the situation, which should you know, allow you to look with an open mind to the research because it's not something that's like, oh, you know, have your fucking latte, you know, like go get your vaccine. It's a different game. It's a different game. And the science is already there to prove the damage that we do. And so a military study was done a few years ago looking at the influenza vaccine and that flu vaccine that, like you say, is treated as if it was Coca-Cola. That flu vaccine increased the likelihood of getting coronavirus the following year. And so as of December, when we get this burst of information from China that 2020 was going to see an emergence of a new coronavirus strain that could be, by our CDC's estimations, 30 times more deadly than flu, we should have rushed out and ceased all flu vaccine programs in the country. They marched on. Pharmaceutical companies made another $7.5 billion selling flu vaccines between January and April to our own demise. And we increased our vulnerability to coronavirus yet again through the chronic flu vaccine practice. And so the reason why we see more and more coronavirus, echovirus, adenovirus, all these things is because it was become such a predominant experience to get the flu vaccine, which then leaves us more vulnerable to these other respiratory borne viruses. And so there's deep consequences for your children and grandchildren and great grandchildren as we supervent or, or yeah, go go against the natural relationship that you have to your environment and supersede with these chemical experiences rather than natural experiences of exposure. A chemical experience of, of exposure is a traumatic event in your body and it's going to be remembered and it's going to disrupt the normal flow of your innate immune system, your adaptive immune system and the rest. They're already telling you that this thing doesn't work. They, they, they're already telling you, look, the one we now know for sure that one vaccine is not going to do it. We're going to have to give you a booster three months later and then you have to come back every year for it. They're telling you that this thing doesn't work just like flu didn't work. If 
if the vaccines worked, then we would see a dramatic decrease in the in the penetrance or, or the experience of the infectious process of flu. And yet every NIH study, CDC, everything else, we have exactly the same rate of flu, whether you get the flu vaccine or not. They keep arguing that maybe there's a few hours less of symptoms in some populations who get that thing. A few hours less of symptoms is much different than preventing flu. Yeah. You know what else does that? Zinc. <laughs> yeah, there's plenty of studies Lysine, that show. Yeah. A tomato. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and there's five minutes in the sunshine <laughs> is clinical research one orgasm a year <laughs> you know, like, like, like i mean ecstasy people yeah like, yeah no doubt, it's, no I'm doubt. not talking about mdma here let's, let's <laughs> just do the big thing here so innate ecstasy we are given the capacity for life exuberant we need to get after it. And so don't let the vaccine tell you. Uh, one of my approaches was to buy a little boat. Buy a little boat. If they're gonna keep you from flying, then get out in nature that way. Yeah. But I think one thing that everybody found this year that we could free ourselves up from the fear of 2021 is look what happened when they told us we couldn't do anything but stay at home. We started reconnecting with family. We, started, we planted more backyard gardens than we have since the late 40s. Uh, like we have exploded in our reconnection to nature. And so if they tell you, you can't travel because you don't have vaccines, say, great, well, I'm going to turn my, my community into an oasis. Mm -hmm. I'm going to create heaven on earth right here in my five block community because you won't let me travel, but that's okay because yeah. I will find ecstasy and pleasure and community and fellowship and everything you think you're blocking me from <laughs> right here. And yeah. that's, that's how we're going to heal. And, and then we'll take the time to reclaim our democracy and our freedom and our civil liberties uh, when we find out that Mother Nature already gave us abundance and we don't have to fight for it, we don't have to scramble over it, we don't have to be in fear of it, we don't have to ask our government government for that security. Government provides no safety for you, never has. It's Mother Earth and your soul that showed up on purpose for the journey you're taking that gave you that sense of security of you are on purpose today, you're alive right now, be ecstatic, and have no fear of when you let go of that body to expand. Amen, amen. And all too often we think like, oh yeah, that ecstatic experience is gonna be in Bora Bora if I can just get there. Well, the problem everybody is you're bringing yourself to Bora Bora. So unless you can find it where you are, you're gonna bring yourself and all that baggage with you no matter where you go. So beautiful advice to start at home. Find that there. This has been fucking beautiful, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate you not only for myself and my family, but everybody else that uh, that's experienced this, listeners and far beyond. So just the deepest, deepest gratitude for you and, and your work. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you for all of you participating so actively in that experience. No doubt. It heightened me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, everybody. I love you. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to this conversation with myself and Dr. Zach Bush. As I said, it was one of my favorite conversations of the year. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think. Let us know if this inspired anything in you. And just live a beautiful, ecstatic life. And of course, check out everything that Zach Bush has been doing. He's got some great products that I take as well. Some for gut health, some actually for your sinuses. And he's just a phenomenal individual with a lot of wisdom. So I encourage you guys to give him a follow and check out everything he's doing in the world. I love you and I'll see you next week with Dr. Joe Dispenza. Oh, shit.